Welcome to BioUnlock, where we unlock insights at the edges of the possibility frontier in biotech. I'm Anastasia Glova, and today I'm joined by Swami Vijayan, founder and CEO of Zafrans, a genomics company that's focused on democratizing drug discovery. Part biology, part chemistry, and part engineering, Zafrans believes that the next century of human advancements will emerge at the interface of disciplines. For this conversation, I'm also very glad to have Elliot Hirschberg, who, unlike me, is an expert in genomics and has been covering this field for years as a scientist, writer, and investor. Elliot also writes the excellent, not-to-be-missed Century of Bio newsletter on Substack. Good afternoon to you both. Anastasia. Hey, Elliot. Hey, Anastasia. Happy to be here. Hi. So, Swami, as I mentioned, your company, Zafran, sits at the interface of several disciplines. Will you tell us in your own words what your company does and what makes it an interdisciplinary undertaking? Yeah, the, so Zafran's is, uh, we're focused on understanding and manipulating cell state. So cell state, people understand either as the omic or the molecular state of cell or the functional state of a cell. And we don't distinguish the two. We are interested both in the molecular state of the cell and how it manifests as function. To do this, so cells are massively heterogeneous. So every cell that you look at has slightly different molecular states, slightly different functional presentation. So to truly study cells comprehensively, you need to be able to do it at scale. So what we have focused on is basically three different pillars. One, start with scale. So we look at lots and lots of cells. We get down to the single cell resolution. And at that single cell resolution, we look at both the molecular state of the cell, which is by the multi-omic profile, looking at RNA sequencing, proteomic profiles, cytokine secretions, at the same time, also mapping it to its functional manifestation, which usually is only relevant in the context of other cells. So we basically look at single cells in the context of how they interact with other cells. Again, do they kill? Does a T cell kill a tumor cell? Does a B cell secrete an antibody that's functionally relevant? So, so that's the second pillar, is being able to simultaneously look at both the sequencing and omic state of a cell and its functional presentation. And the third pillar is it's not helpful to simply study cells unless you can also manipulate them because we want the cell to be able to do something therapeutically relevant. And the third pillar is we actually make a lot, a lot of perturbations. We can make about a million new compounds every month and expose them to cells and then study the molecular and functional response of the cells to these perturbations. So all of this is enabled because we are as much an engineering company who could miniaturize these experiments, make a lot of compounds, automate the synthesis, and at the same time, ask biologically relevant questions with chemically relevant perturbations. So you used two words there that I'd love to uh, just double click on, uh, perturbations and functional manifestations. What do they mean? So perturbation basically, so let's start with the previous, um, the, 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 the functional manifestation. So um, a cell is like a topography. If it's like, if you think about a whack-a-mole type of scenario, there's say 20,000 different proteins existing, 200,000 different forms, and each of them exists in different levels. If you try and manipulate one particular protein, you could manipulate one, but a whole bunch of other things starts moving. So it's a very complex topology that you need to be able to understand holistically to understand how it manifests in a functional context. So um, if you're trying to, again, downregulate a particular gene or protein, what other molecular states, molecular kind of profile changes, and how do these manifest as functional response? So if you're trying to, say, downregulate KRAS, uh, maybe it, it, it kills a tumor cell, but does it kill a cardiac cell? What other pathways are modulated that may be relevant in another tissue? Again, basically connecting, you, I mean, every cell in our body has the same DNA, but every cell is different. And manipulating every cell, the cell responds differently. So being able to understand what the, the molecular kind of uh, state of a cell is and how a perturbation or, 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 or a disturbance or manipulation of the cell state, how that manifests as function, is what we're interested in, in, in understanding. And perturbation basically means how do we alter this topology of the different profiles of molecular states of a cell. And then one interesting part of the story, Swami, is you're, you're mentioning that you're tracking a huge number of cells simultaneously. What goes into to doing that? How are you able to track that many cells in the first place? Yeah, it's basically miniaturization. So if we don't do anything at 96 wells, our minimum throughput is 50,000. So we work anywhere from 50,000 to 200,000 cells. 
And we figured out how to get 50,000 to 200,000 individual cells isolated. And we've also figured out when we image the cells in a co-culture context, can we also sequence them to map the two? Can we map a functional presentation to a molecular underpinning? So that's what we're able to do. And, and again, it's all a miniaturization. And you mentioned 96 cells. Is that how standard drug discovery works yeah, today? The, the, the current standard drug discovery process is 96 experiments at a time. If you're a, a fancy, well-funded pharma, you would do 384 or 1536 experiments at a time. And you would use a robot to do a lot more of those experiments. So it's a very roboticized, centralized infrastructure. And we want to change that. And again, we can do 50,000 experiments without any robot, just a single person pipetting it in. Uh, cells uh, can do 50,000 experiments. We basically miniaturized and simplified the process of doing experiments. Mm -hmm. And how does miniaturization lead to better drug discovery, better awareness of uh, how a certain perturbation will lead to what you said, uh, functional manifestation, is that correct? Yeah, miniaturization simply gets us the scale. So um, we don't want to be doing expensive automation to do a lot of experiments. If you can do 50,000 experiments trivially, then you can do 5 million experiments trivially as well, because then you can add some automation and do really, really, really high throughput. And, and because cells are so heterogeneous, and again, a cell has, again, so 200,000 individual isoforms of proteins, and even considering a pairwise interaction, say is responsible for function, that's 200,000 times 200,000, 10 to the power 10, 10 to the power 11 possible perturbations that could manifest as useful function. So to, to truly map the heterogeneity of cells, you need to be able to look at a lot, a lot of scale cells. And the, the only way to economically and, 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 and kind of reasonably to look at such scale is to do miniaturization. So you can get through more experiments sooner. This general approach to science completely blew my mind when I first learned about it. In the beginning of my career, before I was in genomics, I was in a lab that was doing exactly what Swami's describing, where we had 96 well plates for conditions, 384 well plates, and we were moving the, the amount of cells that we could around with liquid handling robots and, and testing different molecules. We were trying to find um, vaccines for, for cancer, actually. Something that just completely blew my mind is I went to a different department, the genomics department at the University of Washington. And labs that were next door to mine were barcoding cells using DNA. And it just absolutely um, changed the game in terms of the scale of what was happening. So all of a sudden, molecularly, you're, you're sort of using synthetic DNA to keep tabs on different molecules and combinations. And you sort of get to the scale um, that Swami's talking about. So maybe we could sort of jump into to what even means to be barcoding a cell with, with DNA, that, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, we, that's certainly one approach to, to uh, track cells. If you want to molecularly track cells, you can barcode a cell. And then and, 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 you know, the barcode gets associated with the mRNA or any kind of multiomic profile. So our argument is that the molecular state by itself is not sufficient to fully describe a cell state. Because there's so much redundancy in cells. There's so much you know, evolutionarily kind of evolved redundancy in a cell that any particular pathway or gene that you knock down or modulate, some other pathway um, evolves or adapts to, to recover the same function. So what we're interested in really is the molecular state and how that relates to function of the cell. So uh, we use a slightly different mechanism. So I, I talked about we use miniaturized wells. The wells are barcoded. So you can do any type of functional assay. So you can actually observe the cells moving around. You can observe cells kill other cells, interact with other cells. Um, and because the well is barcoded, what we can do is relate the imaging and functional properties of the cell to then when you sequence it, the molecular state of it. So it's a slightly different uh, perspective. Barcoding cells allows you to do functional probing. Barcoding the wells allows you to map the molecular profile to a functional uh, manifestation. So why isn't drug discovery done like this today? Um, question for Elliot or Swami. You, know, Elliot, um, you, were, you were really surprised to, to discover this. And Swami, you probably have insight into why this isn't how people do it today. Yeah, it's, a, it's the, um, the, the, the communication between engineers, chemists, and biologists. So traditionally, drug discovery is kind of run or, or managed by biologists or chemists. And being able to miniaturize experiments and being able to do it 
effectively, efficiently, cheaply requires an engineer's intuition to come into play. So marrying an engineering kind of background and expertise with the type of questions a biologist and chemist would want to ask um, is a tricky kind of uh, a problem to solve because the different disciplines come from different they look at the world differently. They, they, they come from different perspectives. They don't talk the same language. So um, the confluence of the different disciplines is truly what enables us to do what we do. This yeah. makes sense. This is exactly what I had said in the beginning, the, that confluence, the interface of several disciplines. And in particular, you have a PhD in physics, but you, you run a biology company. So I would love to hear from you, um, you know, how your background prepared you for this type of work. And Elliot, you were saying something? Yeah, I was saying just to just to add a bit of, of context. I think Swami's totally right. Where where it takes a huge amount of context between disciplines for all of this to actually come together and, and be of value. And it's only recently that there's been sort of enough of these these foundational technologies to even consider doing this. Um, one of the ways that I like to describe it that that really kind of fits what what Swami's up to is that there's this incredible confluence between DNA sequencing, which gets a lot of credit. It's been an incredible cost curve where we had a $3 billion government project that now where people are talking about commercial applications of, of sequencing at $100 a genome, right? So an absolutely um, insane cost decrease in DNA sequencing. Um, one thing that gets a little bit less credit but is really important here is the, uh, the cost curve for DNA synthesis. Um, so the ability to do all of this this complicated barcoding, um, potentially not for for the the optical barcoding, but especially for for cells, is that you can write lots of DNA really cheaply. Um, and so these these two things together are commonly referred to as the Carlson curves. Where part of why this isn't happening in the first place right now is that there's been this enormous improvement in these foundational technologies which opens up a totally different scale. And I, I really like that you're using that word a number of times for me to describe what you're doing. It's a completely different scale of actual experimentation. And so I think getting these things to work now is, is really starting to change things, but it's a, it's a really recent development. Um, there's a huge- Yeah, it's just fascinating to me. I mean, in the last 150 years, we were able to uncover or unravel 150 million years of evolution. We can actually peer into the cell and understand how things are happening. More than that, we can manipulate it. So we no longer just know passengers to entropy. We can actually manipulate how things are happening. We can, we can change cell state because you can synthesize a lot of DNA and put them in the cell and see what you can do to change stuff. So it's just it's fascinating. We are in an exciting period of uh, biotech at the moment. I like that, uh, passengers to entropy. I'm going to highlight that. Yeah. So would, when you change the molecular state of a cell, does that... Can you extrapolate then what happens to an entire tissue, an entire organ system? Yeah. So again, if you think of a cell as a complex system, so cell has, let's assume, there's, let's assume that there's 200,000 individual components, say 200,000 individual protein types that are interacting. Um, so, and, and it, it could lead to a lot of possible outcomes because there's so many interactions happening, but there's only a certain outcomes that are typically present. So uh, again, a DNA produces so many proteins, but there's only about say 100 or 200 cell types. So there are certain fixed points or certain certain areas where those interactions coalesce into either due to evolutionary pressure or, or due to function because the cell has to live and multiply. They kind of settle into 200, say, different cell types, let's call them, or cell states. Um, but there's no saying why you can't induce a new cell state. So somehow due to evolutionary pressure and, and due to you know, the cell function, they, they result in the 200 cell states. But if you add an external perturbation to it, if you add a molecule to it, if you add an external piece of DNA to it, could you make the cell, those interactions settle into a new Frankenstein state that does not look like anything we see today, but could have function? So if you're trying to put a T cell into your body, so like in, in our body, our, our immune cells are really good at killing tumors, but the tumor fights back. So could you create a new cell state that is, exquis is exquisitely suited to kill the tumor, overcome the tumor immune, immune environment? Because whatever the tumor is doing, we can try and counteract if you engineer appropriate circuits in the Frankenstein cell. Could you make it robust enough that it stays and persists and kills the tumor? So those kinds of stuff is what we can do. It's yeah. basically countervening the endogenous fixed states or fixed points in the complex system and introducing new states that can be stable and do useful function. I think that's really a, a special part of, um, 
of what you're up to in, in talking about mapping from, from chemical perturbations to the, the landscape where biologists like to sort of describe this, um, this range of possible cell states that Swami's articulating as, um, as this landscape where you can imagine sort of a marble rolling to different um, regions in a, in a map. And so there are these little minima that, that a cell ends up in that's an that's a evolved cell state. That's your, it, it sort of rolls down a landscape and ends up in, it's, it's in cardiac cell state or immune cell state. And what's so powerful about, um, about being able to both read out that landscape and simultaneously add chemical prediction, uh, perturbations or, or other types of perturbations to say, where can I move that marble? Where can I move cells around um, for, for therapeutic purposes? And so that's kind of the, the key benefit of we're moving from, from being sort of an observational discipline where we're saying a lot of things about about how single cells are, are expressing to actually talking about what it means to, to try and move those cells around. That's a brilliant analogy. So, so basically, again, to go back to your question about perturbation stages. So there is this topologies landscape and the way, again, recently uh, with CRISPR and gene editing technologies, we were able to press down or alter specific positions in the topology and see how the entire, I mean, these are all interconnected. We don't know the interconnections. We know underneath, they're all connected somehow. So if you squish down or knock down or raise down certain areas, something else happens some, somewhere else. So that's what we're trying to understand. But we're able to do it one at a time. So what a small molecule or a compound allows us to do is try and mess around with a lot of these places simultaneously. And especially if you can do it at scale, the best way to probe a complex system is to start messing around with it and see what happens. So small molecule gives you a lot more flexibility, especially if you can do a lot of small molecules in perturbing this landscape. And because we can also see, not only are we perturbing the landscape and changing the molecular state, we can also see what it means functionally. So if I mess around these bunch of different areas, does it produce more cytokines? Does it die? Does it proliferate more? And we can start uncovering the underlying mechanisms, which, we, which, we, which we're hoping we can do um, as we do this more and more uh, with more perturbations. So you were you were talking about the almost cognitive shift that is required to be able to ask different questions of biology in order to to create what's really a tech bio company, right? Instead of biotech, um, would you would you describe this as a tech bio company first? Is it primarily a technology company first? Maybe Elliot, you can start. I mean, how what, in your conception, how do, how does tech bio differ differ from biotech? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think that um, that tech bio has come to mean a lot of different things. I think there's a, a different levels of affinity for the, for the term. Generally, it's a, it's a shift in orientation where the, the focus is on the set of, of engineering disciplines that are being used to do biology at scale, right? So it's, it's, it's different from discovering a molecule in a lab, making a biotech or biopharma company and commercializing that molecule. In these types of companies, um, you are commercializing a set of engineering tools or a platform that has the potential to make a large number of, um, of products or engage in different partnerships. And I think that's a really different type of, of company. It's a different set of tools. One sort of disconnect or point of disagreement in the, in the field is a lot of people use tech bio to just sort of mean software centric um, approaches to biotech where, where tech is, is really synonymous with like you have more software engineers than a biotech company used to have. For me, I like to think of it as, as a little bit broader than that, where when you think of some of the core technologies that are at play here, it's, it's hardcore adoption of semiconductor technology, uh, nanotechnology, miniaturization, and software all together. Um, and so I think that, you know, to me, I, I think it's a meaningful term where it at least gives a descriptor for this, this overall change to the companies and the founders Right, we're speaking to a physicist starting a, a biotech company based on really elaborate miniaturization. And so to me, that that sort of um, is different enough to to deserve its own term. Yeah, I can I can maybe speak to the other version that Elliot alluded to. So traditionally, when we did an experiment, it was guided by intuition and experience of a bunch of people providing the hypothesis. We have come to an era where black box neural networks suggest something to try. So 
to Elliot's point, there are companies that are willing to make the bet and say, I'm going to trust what the black box is telling to me because we don't know its intuition. We don't know where it learned. It's seeing patterns that we can't see and it's predicting something. And there are companies who, who are willing to make the bet and follow the prediction and try an experiment. So that is a new type of company. Again, it could, it could be a subset of tech bio, but that, that's very much a, a new generation of companies. Again, in terms of what we do, a lot of what we observe is, is too data rich and too complex for us to visually make intuition or make conclusions from it. So we have to rely extensively because when we use a library of small molecules, we perturb so much biology. We perturb so much morphology, so many functional responses that we have to rely on a black box to, to again, which we are, which again, in the last 10, 15 years, it's been so amazingly sophisticated that can look at this data and provide insights. Uh, and, and again, we're in a position where we can trust it um, because it's been doing it so often, it's been verified so often. The more data we feed, the more meaningful predictions it can make. And so we are excited about that possibility where we are feeding it so much data and so much rich data with so much rich context that we are excited for what we will learn uh, from these machine learning insights. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good distinction to make in terms of the, the orientation of the importance of, of proprietary data relative to, to putting all of your weight into black box models. It's really powerful to actually start with a foundational new measurement technology that's able to generate enormous amount of data where uh, you're not reliant on uh, an AI model to make uh, predictions and understand all of chemistry, you are relying on massive actual chemical measurements. And then that informs a downstream model. And so sort of in my in my view of the world, which is admittedly my, myopic as somebody that's with the background in genomics as well, is you sort of start with the, the scale of experimental data and then work your way towards machine learning and, and any level of, of computation for a prediction. I also am, am biased in thinking that that's a really defensible way to, to build a, a business where there are all these questions around what people are, 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 are going to be able to defend in terms of new AI products. Whereas if you are from a starting point generating really powerful internal data sets, that sets you on a great foundation to make a lot of value. So you're and running again, the experiments and you're putting them into the AI model, which then lets you know what experiment to run next as opposed to relying yeah, just on the model entirely to tell you which experiment to start? Yeah, there's, there's a few different mm -hmm. flavors. So one way we use that is basically we, we run a few compounds or maybe a, a few hundred thousand to a million compounds. Um, and what are those compounds doing? And, and again, so we have chemical structure and we have the molecular perturbations that these chemical structures induce. It basically changes RNA levels, protein levels, and then those manifest as function. So certain cells die, certain cells grow, certain cells secrete more of a cytokine. Can we, again, there's only so much we can look at and, and, and make predictions or observations. So could a model tell us, if I make a new compound of a certain structure, what will the outcome be? Or if you want a desired outcome, can the model tell us what compound should I make? Um, today, it's possible to do that for binding. So we have, we have a handful of binding studies. But again, binding a protein and a small molecule doesn't quite tell us the complete biology that's perturbed because if you, you can optimize a molecule binding to a protein, but we can't tell how it binds to a different protein, how, how the binding to a different protein will alter biology because we're taking a cell level and a complete transcriptional level kind of view. So we get a lot more fine-grained information on, on what goes on in the cell. So that's certainly one way of, of um, thinking about how machine learning helps us. Um, another way to think about it is, again, you can do a lot of these experiments on model cells. I mean, so if you can do, if you just pick a model cell, say a, a, you know, a liver cell or a kidney cell, and you do 100 million compound experiments on the model cell, then we could use AI to predict if this compound perturbs the model cell in a certain way, how would it perturb a given patient cell? So there's another area where AI can help us as well. Maybe we can go into, go into more details on that later. So I'm curious, what kind of problems you've been able to, to start looking at Yes. Maybe the most interesting drug discovery problems that you've come across in your work. Yeah, we, we, I can talk about two different examples. One is basically, again, we talked about immune cells and uh, the tumor being really good at kicking away immune cells and, 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 and pushing away the immune uh, system. So could we find in a cancer patient's blood, a rare T cell that fought the war, got defeated, but still circulating in the body? Those are rare. Could we find those rare cells that can kill a tumor? Could we make more of them and inject them back into a patient? So it's a, it's a rare cell uh, identification problem. So of the, say, 100 million T cells in a patient's blood, could you find the one or 10 cells 
that can kill the tumor. So you're looking at a functional assay. You're not simply looking for sequencing, looking for a killing assay. At the same time, because our ability is to both do a functional assay and a sequencing assay, could we also sequence the cell to figure out what about the cell makes it kill the tumor? What is the T cell receptor, but also what is the molecular state that rendered it not be able to kill the tumor? It's in your body, but it's not killing the tumor. So can you understand the molecular state which cause it to be not tumor reactive or be defeated by the tumor microenvironment. So that's one example where we can kind of get into immuno-oncology, immunotherapies, and identify T cells. But on the same vein, now that you've identified a cell state that is supposed to, that, that, that again, the cell is primed to kill a tumor but could not kill a tumor, now could you add a small molecule and alter the cell state to make it go kill the tumor? So you can make more of the cell, you can make more of the, the, the T-cell receptor, but again, there's no guarantee that it's going to go and kill the tumor. It may all get defeated again. So could you induce a small molecule modulator? So could you alter the state and make it kill the tumor? So we work on both those problems. So we work on identifying those rare population that, that can identify tumor, but we also work on small molecule interventions that will juice them up and have them uh, fortified to take on the tumor microenvironment. I think that's a, a really interesting thesis, Swami, where... If we zoom out a little bit and think about where we've gone with with immunotherapy so far, it's been this remarkable medical breakthrough that you can take a patient's own immune cells and remove them from the body, do genetic engineering to, to, tr to train those immune cells to target a patient's cancer, reintroduce them to the body, and literally cure cancers. Right, so we've had we've had instances where pediatric cancers um, in some of the early patients at, at Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania were still in, in complete remission years later. But one of the, the huge problems that the entire field is, is grappling with is that process that I described of taking out a patient's cells, engineering them, putting them back in, um, is extremely expensive and, and hard. And in some instances, we're talking about literally flying the patient's cells around on passenger airplanes, right? So it's, it's pretty hard to drive down the price of a medicine if it, call it, if it includes round-trip airplane flights. Um, so the notion of potentially taking this technology and looking for the rare T-cells that don't need to be engineered already can recognize a patient's cancer, and then having a small molecule pill to sort of wake them up and again move them around that cell landscape to activate them. That's a, that's a pretty big deal what you're describing. Yeah, that's exactly. Because we can look at the molecular state and the functional state of the cell, and we can manipulate them to get the desired function, we are able to uh, imagine this and actually do these experiments and, and find molecules that can do this. Is this generalizable to an entire population, or are we talking about synthesis towards a very specific type of patient or a very small population? That's a brilliant question. So there's two versions of the cell therapies that I just talked about. One is called autologous and allogeneic. So what we do is autologous. So the way we do our experiments, we extract the T cells, the immune cells from a patient, and we have those immune cells exposed to the patient's own tumor cells or antigen-presenting cells. So again, we are all very different. We all have different what are called HLA types. My immune cells will not work in your body. So your body will try and kill away my T cells if you inject my T cells in your body. So what we need to be able to find is T cells that work for each individual person. And our platform allows us to do that. It takes about three days to go from blood to finding a TCR that is selective against the patient's tumor. Um, so it's really rapid. It's really inexpensive. So the hope is in the future, it'll, it'll apply to everybody and, and there's no restrictions. So is that kind of how you envision the, um, the general loop of you're, you're doing sort of this, this personalized analysis on a per patient basis with your measurement technology, and then you're, you're making a formulation that's a, a, a pill or a medicine rather than engineered cells. Is that kind of the... Yeah, the, the ideal, I mean, the, the dream scenario is it's an outpatient type of therapy. So you go to a hospital... Um, you extract the blood and, or you, almost a dialysis or di, di, um, what, what do you call them, uh, apheresis type of machine. You extract the cells, um, find the cell that is uh, what you want. Ideally, we can find a way to expand those cells, add a small molecule, expand them and put them back in the patient. So ideally, it's a closed loop outpatient type of therapy. But along the way, again, that's where my background as a physicist kind of helps and comes in handy is I'm be happy to imagine a spherical cow to start with. So we'll take an idealized scenario, start working from there and gradually get up to the more complex phenomena. 
Can you help me understand your supply chain um, a little bit? You know, where do the cells come from? You mentioned for immune oncology, you're taking cells directly from patients. What about for other experiments? Our cells all come from patients or they're called cell lines. So these are banked cells from people who have donated cells for, for research. Yeah, in terms of supply chain, again, where we, we work on an individualized basis, it comes from patients. Otherwise, it comes from cell lines. And then when it comes to uh, drug approvals, right, and trials and approvals, how does that work, especially if it's a small population? Would that be more difficult or easier to obtain approval from the FDA? Um, I, I don't think we are making any changes there uh, yet. So, the, the, again, the, the, the future scenario, we, we, it's, a good, it's a great question in that the early stage drug discovery does not quite move the needle because where we fail often is the medicine that works in, mo- in, in, a, in, a, in, in, in model cells, in mice, very rarely works in humans. So the, the, the question really is, could we make drugs at the early stage that we know will work for a patient? We are hoping our platform, the, the, the resolution at which we can do the experiments and the AI models. Um, so basically, if you can do 100 million experiments on a model cell and you do 100 experiments on a patient's cell, could you transpose the knowledge of the 100 million experiments in the model cell over to the patient? So could you do almost an in vitro, in silico kind of clinical trial before you go to the actual clinical trial? So those are the kind of uh, possibilities we are envisioning because you get such high throughput, high resolution experiments. And can they be transferred over to a patient? What we're doing today does not move the needle in terms of what gets approved, but we're hoping over time, the more data we generate, we will start producing more assets that are patient relevant and, and, and reduce the clinical complexity and, and attrition. And other than immune oncology, what other rare diseases do you see this applying to or that you've worked on? The platform is universal. So the platform basically is you can look at 50,000 to 200,000 cells at a time. It's just a very simple chip. And those cells could be anything. It could be an immune cell. It could be a bacteria. It could be a yeast. It could be a cancer cell. And the input to the platform is you add a bunch of cells and you add a bunch of perturbations. So small molecules or peptides or antibodies, and then you look for sequencing and imaging. So it's a very, very universal platform. Uh, and, and our focus on immune oncology is more of a business uh, and, and, and kind of logistical decision. And we're hoping over time we will turn the platform to different uh, cell types. So immune cells are the ones that are most accessible. You can kind of draw the blood and get the immune cells out and put them back. And so those are, again, from a practical sense, the most appropriate system to start with. I'm curious to understand how far away you are from market, who your partners and and customers would be. Yeah, in terms of being able to do these experiments and generate insights, we are already doing it. And we are talking to a lot of different pharmaceutical companies to try and forge partnerships. We have about four different pilot programs that we have have ongoing, two of them completed. And we are starting to talk to pharma about doing some larger collaborations based on what we already demonstrated. So in terms of being able to do experiments and collaborations, we are, we are in the midst of uh, doing them. And we also have an internal pipeline. In addition to the pharma collaborations, we've actually picked for our own what we think would be valuable assets to have. And we, we have drug discovery programs around those targets. Swami, do you, do you have any thoughts there on, on sort of this embarrassment of riches that sometimes platforms have where you've got a huge number of things that you can partner on? It's this, it's this universal platform how did you go about thinking of, of, the, of what the pipeline should be for yourself um, versus what to work on with your, with your partners? These are some, some hard uh, problems for, for founders like yourself. Yeah, no, at some point you just need to make a call. I mean, this is just from experience. It's my third time running a company. And, and you can kind of you know, um, look at the market to see there are some high value opportunities. So earlier on, small molecules used to be the only modality and then came antibodies and now T cells and, and cell therapies are a massively emerging opportunity. Again, imagine manipulating, the cell are the foundational units of life and being able to manipulate them and engineer them and having them do what you want them to do. There are no tools to do that. It's such an emerging field. It's curative, like you noted, but it's just impossible to understand them comprehensively today. So it was just an obvious uh, slot for us to start with. So understanding immune cells, manipulating immune cells. Again, we will likely be focused there for the near future until we have had some successes there. And we want to use our revenues and successes to feed the next iteration of the, of the applications. You mentioned two other companies. Were they also in tech bio? Uh, what led to you founding Zafrens, especially as a, um, as a physics PhD? Yeah, my companies, again, um, my perspective, I started off doing theoretical physics. And one thing that 
has taught me, it kind of what trains you in, in is to find broader solutions. So you can always find a problem and find a specific solution to it. But as a physicist, as a theoretical physicist, you're always trying to think, is there a broader underlying principle? Is there a broader solution for, for this problem? And that's kind of what guided my thinking in biology. So the first company was, was a DNA sequencer, but we tried to make it as small as possible and, and as basically have screaming signals so you could run it off your cell phone if needed. So the thought was, no, you could do a COVID screen with it, or you can do an oncology screen with it, or you can go to the field and do sequence your maize or corn crops. That company got acquired for a lot of money. It, it's now is the world's most accurate sequencer. Again, it was an interface between engineering and biology. We made, we made specific type of nucleotides. We made specific type of enzymes. We made specific type of instrumentation put together in a manner to be the broadest applicable sequencing technology. Building the sequencing company, I always thought that if you diagnose something, there was always a cure because I, had, I, hadn't, I, I don't really have a biology background. So I always thought, you know, if you diagnose something, you know, that people, will, people have a medicine for it. Uh, but building the diagnostic company, I learned that was not true. So I wanted to turn my type of perspective to see could we make drugs. So my second company was could we make lots and lots of molecules, could we screen lots and lots of molecules. And again, in doing that, I started realizing that cells are massively heterogeneous. There's so much diversity, so much we don't understand about biology. And so Zafrin's an attempt to, can we understand biology, can we manipulate biology um, to make useful therapeutics? So it is the most uh, foundational kind of platform that, it's the same team. It, it, when I say I've started three companies, it's mostly been the same people across three different uh, enterprises trying to solve the same type of problems. So what we're trying to solve now is the most foundational problem. Can we understand biology? Can we understand cells? Can we manipulate cells into new states that are useful? I love the, the march from theoretical physics to DNA sequencers to drugs. That's uh, the classic pro career progression, right? That's, that's what most <laughs> of us end up uh, doing. <laughs> yeah. Pretty impressive. But, but how did you turn your attention from theoretical physics to biology specifically? Um, that's a long story. I mean, in, in India, where I grew up, if you mm -hmm. study theoretical physics, you're, you're considered the top of society. People looked up to you. I came to the U.S. was a complete opposite. So you need to be uh -huh. a jock for people to look up to you. <laughs> so for me, the question was, did I like physics because I wanted to be popular or did I like physics because, because I like physics? So it was a long journey of kind Which of Which was reflection. it? I realize I'm creative. I'm, I'm good at kind of synthesizing ideas. So I realized that because I, 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 I want to be a jock. So I want to try being a jock. So the, the only way I found to get there was to be a musician. So I couldn't play any music. So, um, but there was a field of music called free jazz or improv where you could just go bang on stuff. And I had groupies. What I learned there is I was good at synthesizing ideas and, and personalities and perspectives and listening to things. So what I do now was just, uh, it's just a reflection of what I learned in my wandering days trying to figure out what I wanted to do, which is basically synthesize ideas and peoples and perspectives. Where did the first thread for, for biology catch your attention? Um, it's my first right? job. Um, so again, I, 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 I kind of stumbled through grad school and I got an internship in a, in a biotech company um, and they happened to work with DNA. So I was brought into model DNA as a polymer. So that's how I started. And I just stuck there. I loved the again, joy yeah, in your it, face when you were talking about it. It was evident. That <laughs> <laughs> it seems you still have your groupies, only they're in biology <laughs> now. No, it's, it's, just the, it's just the understanding that DNA could be modeled as a biophysical yeah. object than a biochemical object. Again, thinking of spherical cows as a starting point, thinking of DNA as a long polymer is a good place to start. And, and I've kind of, my career has kind of proved, proven that true. I, I hear a similar sentiment from computer scientists that come into to biology. There's always, I mean, it, it's just a quaternary code, right? There's four bases. You, you go from zeros and ones to A's, T's, C's, and G's. And that's a, it's an ideal starting point because you're showing very first principles. And then you realize, wow, biology is really complicated. This is, this is hard. And, and you start to, to think about cells, which is, which is sort of where you, you've gone. It's really interesting transition towards, towards trying to embrace the, um, the complexity of biology um, over time. Is there, do you think, and this is for either of you, is there a simple way to formulate what would, what would the question be when a biologist wants to create an experiment versus uh, what kind of a question does a computer scientist or a physicist ask? Like, hmm. where, do they, where do they differ very, very specifically that, that generates a very different type of company? 
I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. So yeah. biologists, because they have experience, because they've been taught a certain way, they are sometimes reluctant to take a leap of faith and, and try something new. For a physicist or a computer scientist, uh, from first principles, certain things are obvious uh, to try, and we are less constrained to try them. As, as somebody who has not had a formal biology training, uh, my view would be let's try all possible experiments. Let's make the option to try all possible experiments inexpensive so we'll find out what the truth is. Whereas yeah. a biologist would say, uh, from what I've learned, from what I've read, this is the way you should try, and they limit themselves to what makes sense right. to them. And I, and I think, you know, to give credit to, to molecular biology, um, I was initially trained as a molecular biologist before sort of retraining in computer science. They really figured out a lot of stuff with a very simple set of tools. And the, the starting point is this grounding in, is something necessary and is something sufficient? So you, you as Swami said, you sort of start by reading a lot of papers, looking at previous data and saying, I think this single component of a cell may be necessary for this process. So if I delete this one thing, what is what happens? And if something happens and it sort of is similar with your hypothesis, then you say, even further, when I put this thing back into the cell, it sufficiently restores the phenotype, right? And so it's this very, it's called sort of reductionist science, right? Where you're reducing things down to a core component where you can change one thing and observe it in an experiment. I think the real contribution of physicists like Swami and computer scientists coming into the field is they start to think about things sort of mathematically, right? They say like, what's the function? What's the underlying function happening here? What, what's for the mapping? You have a whole different set of language that starts to come into play where it's this mapping between chemical space and cellular space. And how can I record that and start to learn these, these general principles of what's happening between molecules and cells, which is very different from starting out and saying like, what's this one part of the cell that I can controllably change and see what happens? I think also yeah, no. in defense of biologists everywhere, they haven't really been able to ask the types of questions we can ask oh, now no. because we didn't have the, the, the instrumentation or the computational uh, capacity available to us today to be able to ask questions uh, at a much smaller level than, you know, taking a culture and putting it under a microscope, right? Yeah, it, it's just incredible. I mean, it's just, it's just flabbergasting how much we know about biology before these tools are even available. Um, it's just the ingenuity of the biologist and, and, and the creativity of people uh, who <laughs> dove into this. I'm house. not throwing biologists out the window here. <laughs> oh, no, no, my goodness. Yeah. I have a rough idea of, of all the confluence of disciplines and uh, technology that's enabled this, but only a rough idea. What actually has happened in the last 10, maybe 20 years that's, that's made it possible for you to miniaturize like this? And you know, Elliot, feel free to jump in as well from what you've seen and you know, tracking the space as a, as a journalist and an investor. I mean, from, from my perspective, it's just the investments in, in nanofabrication, the investment in engineering. So your cell phone chip, like the, the, I don't know, the cell phone camera, it costs maybe a dollar to manufacture. And there's tons of technology that goes into it, which is you know, just available to, to be transferred to another area. So the investment made in, in orthogonal areas, we just tapping into. Um, and again, like Elliot mentioned, the, the advancements in DNA sequencing and synthesis. So just combining these advances that other people have made for other areas uh, opens up a new frontier and a new way of thinking about biology and drug discovery. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a great example of this is um, the early Illumina microarray instruments. And so this was when the Human Genome Project was happening and this, this technology etched chemical wells into semiconductor fiber, right? So the same, the same exact technology that's sort of undergirding the internet. People are taking and, and creating these little miniature wells to do all sorts of, of chemistry on top of at enormous scale. And the only way that they could even tell what the hell they were doing on this tiny fiber was to read it out using image analysis software that didn't previously exist, right? And so if you didn't have those three things, if you didn't have fundamental advances in chemistry that took a century of, of remarkable science, if you didn't have all of the core technology that, that literally gave rise to the internet, and you didn't have ubiquitous and fast software and personal computers, um, you don't get 
the micro revolution. You don't get the subsequent sequencing revolution. And so it's just been, you know, talk about standing on the shoulder of giants and giving credit to, to people before us. There's been a huge amount of, uh, of progress in different fields. And the really exciting thing is, is again, where, st- where things start to intertwine. And it's these, these really exciting sort of compounding exponential curves that are, that are driving some of this. That is why people are so excited about um, this intersection of, of technology and biology. Yeah, that, that's that, that, that's brilliant observation, Elliot. Again, a lot of things you mentioned were the ubiquitous and, and again, inexpensive and, and scale. All technologies inevitably, kind of invariably end up in that democratized, massively decentralized type of environment. Drug discovery hasn't gotten there yet. I mean, it still takes a $50 million infrastructure to build a drug discovery facility. And a drug still, with all the failures accounted for, takes a couple of billion dollars to get to market. That can't be. I mean... Um, Again, we are in, in, in the face of our, in, in our evolution where we are dictating where life goes. So we have to be in a place where this becomes ubiquitous and drug discovery and, and altering cells, altering cell states becomes ubiquitous. And we can't be waiting behind the $50 million infrastructure to, to push the boundaries. We think the way we are thinking about uh, drug discovery and analysis where we miniaturize everything, we do high throughput experiment, but also high resolution experiments, we'll start revealing insights that will allow us to maybe try and democratize and, and, and make drug discovery uh, simpler or cheaper. I do want to spend a little bit of time just asking about the potential risks inherent in democratizing and decentralizing something like drug discovery. In my mind, if you can synthesize a drug, you can also probably synthesize a pathogen. So how, how are you thinking about... Yeah, I know. I need to spend more time thinking about it, but I, I can provide my perspective. Again, I'm, I'm less interested, I'm less worried about the compounds. We make a lot of compounds. We make small quantities of each of them. So them for them to be physiologically kind of relevant is, 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 is not possible. We do our experiment in really, really small volume. So in that volume, the drug is a suitable concentration. But the bigger worry is we alter cell states. And off, I mean, we are specifically interested in cell states that can be propagated. So we, we work in the space called epigenetics. You can alter a cell state, but when the cell divides, the, the memory is gone. So we are interested in, in mechanisms where we store the change in cell state. So subsequent cells, again, a T cell becomes a T cell, a cardiac cell becomes a cardiac cell when it divides. But when you intervene in a cell with an external perturbation, we want to ensure, I mean, for certain reasons, we want to ensure that the daughter cell looks like the perturbed state. So we work in an area called epigenetics where we're trying to, to, to commit the changes to memory. So the problem there is, again, if you end up with a Frankenstein cell, we have to, I mean, we have to think more carefully about what the implications of that are. Could we, again, could that cell become a host for a virus that we can't control? Could that set up, you know, any kind of, no, we haven't, we haven't fully thought about it. Again, that's something we'd be hoping to have experts kind of work with us over time. I mean, you have, you have to develop a capability before you start, obviously, exactly. talking about the So right now, what we're good at is making lots of perturbations, and we're not worried that the perturbation yeah. is going to be a problem because we make small amounts of them. But Elliot may have a different perspective. Yeah, I think it's interesting. There's this general two-sided nature to to all technological development, right? And so there's this this total wide-sweeping dialogue right now about whether or not uh, what we've done for being so interconnected on the internet with with mobile phones is good or bad, right? Simultaneously, we're we're all connected. The problem is that now we're all connected, and you hear what you're friend's crazy grandpa has to say about politics and that just sort of that's been an interesting change for our species there's a similar dynamic for for biotechnology especially when we start talking about democratizing and and scaling things way down and, and making it possible to do this abundantly and so to make something ubiquitous you have to really think about about both sides of that that coin drew indy a professor at stanford who's been really influential in the the trajectory of synthetic biology like to describe it that sure we're they you know there's there's um, weapons of, of mass destruction WMDs. There's also the potential for technology for mass construction, right? So in, in, you can sort of flip and, and think about both sides of it. What Swami's building is he's clearly very well intentioned and in thinking about ways to to have this really constructive benefit for the technology to to make more medicines, which I think we can all agree on. The question then is is um, with this with this technology available. Is there a potential for sort of nefarious actors? 
And that's a, a, a huge can of worms that's sort of the field of biosecurity, thinking about ways that we can sort of do this safely and effectively and have controls. It's been interesting, the, the AI community, um, especially people that are scared about existential AI risk, have started to treat synthetic biology as one of the things that's the, the most possible to go wrong. So I think we have to sort of make a case for our field for, for why what we're doing is uh, is potentially so valuable to make new medicines, to to make abundantly available food and energy, and be really pragmatic and, and, and thoughtful about how to put the guardrails on the kind of technology to make sure that um, we don't get any of those negative. And, uh, yeah, no, we, we are turning back, you know, 500 million years of evolution, like right? we can do it in a day. So there are implications for that that we have to think through. Certainly, uh, Elliot, thank you for that. Uh, that's, that's pretty much the, the direction that I, of the question that I wanted to ask. I'm hearing so much more today specifically about biotechnology because it's greatly enabled by, by AI. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in understanding the implications of this type of uh, scaled, um, democratized drug discovery in the hands of anybody in the living room. Um, but of course, you have to develop the capability first before you can understand what you can do with it. Um, and as far as I understand, Swami, your, um, your customers, you're, you're working or you want to be working directly with uh, pharma companies, right? Yeah, that's our model. I mean, um, so we want to make drugs. We want to be useful. We want to have an impact on the world. The traditional way it's done is you raise a lot of money from investors and the investors pay you money for a single bet. So you raise $100 million to take an asset to the clinic. But if that fails, everybody shuts shop, goes home. It doesn't make any sense to me. So you're assembling an awesome team of people. You're, you're spending so much time and effort for all of us to shut shop and go home because, no, we had one failure. So what we're trying to envision is we want to make drugs, but we want to make drugs with revenue. So we want to try and get as much revenue as we can generate so that we can kind of make our own bets in the clinic. If something fails, we have more revenue to take another bet in the clinic. So we are focused on making as much revenue as we can. So our near-term goal is to just get lots and lots of revenue that allows us to do one or two trials on our own. So that's our focus. So in the near term, yes, pharma are our customers. So we're trying to solve pharma's problems and charge them a lot of money uh, because we want to charge on the value of what we generate, uh, not how much it costs us to solve the problem. So just as we're wrapping up, um, we, we talked about how many uh, advances, technologies and disciplines are intertwining to, to make it possible for you to do the work that you do, Swami. Is there another thread that you wish you could uh, weave into that in interwoven tapestry that would help you? Um, it's, just the human, it's just the human, uh, human component of it. So a good engineer thinks of the world a certain way. So a good engineer wants to have a defined work plan and they will deliver to it. A good biologist is always circumspect. They never know what's going to happen. They, they know they didn't know a lot of things. A good chemist is always frustrated because every molecule they took to the clinic failed. So they all come to a problem with very, very different perspectives. Our success and anybody who's working at this interface or, or the future of biotech or tech bio relies on somehow these personalities working together. So we spend a lot of time figuring out what is it that can bring all these people together? How can we find a common language? It's such a very subtle, human, emotional type of problem or, or, or scenario. It makes or breaks companies. I understand that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the future will right. depend on, on, on this personality and perspectives converging. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great note to, to end on where I think uh, in general, the, one of the key bottlenecks for the space is, is, uh, is people. As people with the capacity to sort of speak across those languages of chemistry, biology, computer science. And it's going to be super powerful as we train more people in this space, as more companies get started, and we start to really you know, make it down. Oh, you're on mute in the station. Yeah. Thank you both. <laughs> awesome. Thank you Thanks. both for your time.